0: Welcome to the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast. And I am so thrilled to have Jerry Pollack here, an amazing scientist, Dr. Dr. Jerry. Oh, thank you for being here. When I started looking at Jerry's work, I had recently read when I was writing a book about hydration, his book, The Fourth Phase of Water. Super interested in structured water, how that absorbs differently into our matrix and to ourselves as as humans for health. And um, I was able to interview Gina Bria when I was in San Francisco, and she said, Jerry's your man. So I also have a guest interviewer, Paul Papin, and together we'll interview Jerry. And thank you, Jerry, for being here.
1: Oh, I'm uh, thrilled and uh, delighted. Um, and happy if I can answer your questions. I will. We'll see um, um yeah, hydration is obviously r- really really a critical issue, and um you know some of our our work on water speaks speaks to that issue uh so anyway I'm, I'm sure that will come up in our conversation, but I'll let you be the leader and start with the with your questions. <laughs>
0: Well, I would really love this to be quite organic. There's so much information that you bring forth. You have a couple amazing TED Talks that people can listen to if they want to hear a little bit more. You, you've you structured them really well. What I would really like to do in this podcast is to bring it a little bit further than just human hydration and the possibilities of human hydration to what this could potentially do to help hydrate the earth and the animals, and possibly bring a little bit of information in, around your new book on weather and how that impacts our our ability to hydrate. So can you start just telling a little bit about your history, Jerry, and what how this came about in at the University of Washington, the discovery of easy water and, and what easy water means?
1: Okay. Um... Well, it all started uh, twenty or twenty-five years ago, and we were studying muscles. That was my, my original subject. We were we were studying how how muscles contract. In other words, the molecular mechanism by which your, your muscles and my muscles and everybody else's muscles contract. And there was a theory. Uh, there still is a theory put forth by a famous Nobel laureate. Sir Andrew Huxley. And and Sir Andrew, Sir Andrew was a sort of scientist among scientists. Uh, you know, he with the name Huxley, he came from the, the famous Huxley family. So he starts with with that distinction. He also won a Nobel Prize and, and he was president of the Royal Society and uh master of Trinity College, Cambridge. And when he walked into the room, there was a hush. Um, you know, this is the great man has has walked in and and everyone proceeds in silence um you know it was an awesome figure the problem is that his theory didn't match uh the evidence and we had quite a bit of evidence that simply didn't didn't um, conform to the predictions of of his theory and and we pressed on for years and i i came to learn about the process of doing science that uh, um you know revolutionary ideas of which we we had some um uh, there's a real obstacle because um, 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 it's it's easier for someone in the field. It's easier to you might say kowtow to um, to the, this great great man, and um, uh, rather than support a revolutionary. And it has to do with practicalities. Uh, uh, a lot of it has to do with putting bread on the table because. You need to get grants, and uh, it's easy to get grants if you pay homage to the great people in the field um, rather than to the revolutionaries. Uh, it's difficult to get the grants, and the grants really matter because you can't do any science without money, and and, and so you need need the grants. Anyway, that, that sort of background. And uh, one of the issues that I've been thinking about is the the theory put forth by sir andrew huxley um uh, it it implicitly presumed that the muscle was the muscle proteins were operating in a vacuum in fact they operate in water you know and if you remove the water from the occasion from from the equation you're you're missing something that could be important um and i've been sort of scratching my head on that that's why I you know have lost a lot of hair uh, scratching <laughs> my head. Uh, and thinking thinking about about that <laughs> issue and one day um uh, uh I was driving back from the airport, picking up um a scientist, a Hungarian scientist who was to be working in my laboratory, and we started a conversation, and we didn't get more than a few miles before he said to me, "You know." There's in his Hungarian accent. You, you know, there's a there's a conference in Hungary, and you should go. Uh, I said, "Well, tell me about it." He said, "Well, uh, the conference is is to honor the memory of a famous biophysicist, and um, and this guy was this biophysicist had interests in water and muscle, and there's already a bunch of people uh, going to the conference to contribute on water." But there's nobody about on muscle and 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 this famous hungarian scientist was deeply involved in 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 muscle so why don't you go and and make a presentation okay so i said i'll go so um i went to hungary and uh i presented my work on muscle contraction and i can't remember if if that was well received or not well received but uh I don't really remember too much, but then came the presentations on water, and I, you know, I had no background, no experience, and I listened to um, one one guy who, um, who who actually had been very famous, but I I didn't I didn't know him, a guy named Gilbert Ling, who presented on water, and Gilbert Ling was um, a scientist chosen among many uh, young scientists from China to come to the US to study. They looked all around China and they picked three people. This was 1948, the first cohort of people to come come to the US from China to study. Um, and they picked a physicist and they picked a chemist and a biologist. And Gilbert was the biologist. And the the physicist, a guy named C.N. Yang, went on to win a Nobel prize. And he actually became a, uh, uh, Equally or maybe even more famous throughout China when at age almost ninety um he married his translator who was in her early thirties, <laughs> and there was also some rumor that she might be pregnant <laughs> uh so um that that got all around china but but anyway he was he was a Nobel laureate, and a colleague of mine told me that the chemist who came was also a Nobel laureate and Gilbert Ling was the biologist, and i i <laughs> learned. Uh, since I began hearing about what he had done, that he deserves at least two Nobel prizes or deserved. He died a few years ago at the age approaching 100. So I listened to Gilbert Ling and he said, water, water is really important in biology. And the water that's inside your cells, inside your body, it's not like ordinary liquid water. He said it's structured. So, uh, well, you know, what do, what do you mean structured? Well, structured, it means it has structure to it. And he said, you can think of the water molecule as a dipole, you know, like a little bean uh, with a positive charge at one end and a negative charge at the other end. And and with those two charges separated, you can imagine that, uh, that the water molecules would stack um, upon one another and line up that way. And so he said, and in biology that's the way the water is um so for me it was uh, kind of a, a a shock but uh gilbert presented uh, uh, ample evidence that in, indeed that was the case uh, you know years and years of experimental um, uh, obse- observations that fit and then uh, compounded uh, by uh, his his own presentation were pre- presentations or complimenting, I should say, presentations of other scientists. And there were perhaps a dozen of them who came and independently did research on on water and concluded exactly the same as Gilbert Ling. Well, some nuances of difference, but basically that the water was structured. I I was awestruck. Uh, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because the implication of all this was that if these guys are right, especially Gilbert Ling, you know then all of biology was wrong uh because we think of water and in, in biology as like water in a glass and but they, they they were these these folks were saying no no that's not that's not true the water in biology is is different and um and so it was really important anyway um i i i was astonished in hearing all this and i rather didn't trust myself so I went back, I came back to Seattle, and I, I, I got one of Gilbert Ling's uh, multiple books, and I gave it to um, some of my students and postdocs. I said, have a look at this and le- let me know what you think. I, I was curious whether their thoughts were similar to my thoughts, um, but they didn't trust my, my thoughts. Uh, and they all came back with the same, essentially the same, same response. If this guy is right, all the biology is wrong. It needs to start from the ground up, and it looks like you know he he has quite a bit of evidence uh, in in support. So the first thing I did, you know, we were studying for quite a few years about muscles and muscle contraction, um, and um, I I I was kind of put myself in the category as you know in search of a fundamental truth. Uh, I'm a am I'm, I'm not a guy who Joins and jumps on the bandwagon. I I don't know why, but uh, I I really want uh, to find fundamental truth from the ground up. Uh, and 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 so um, I thought step one in doing this, uh, because I thought Gilbert Ling uh, had found ground truth, and later we found some some different some substantial differences. Uh, essentially, the general idea about structure was correct, but but I'll I'll tell you if you ask me about some nuances which I think are really important um uh and, and so I decided to write a book uh to describe Gilbert Ling's ideas in such a way that people could actually understand what he's talking about because his books were are were uh are uh, virtually impenetrable for people who don't have a serious background in physical chemistry and and then various nuances of physical chemistry. Uh, it really, really, they're challenging. I, and I, knowing Gilbert, uh, uh, I know how he operated. He would sit down at at the typewriter or later at the word processor uh, and he'd bat out something and it'd ship it off to the publisher, that's it. Uh, and the word, the word editing, uh, it, it was not in his, his lexicon, maybe the word doesn't exist in Chinese. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but you know, Gilbert could could have made it more accessible if he had the desire. But I think he he was a kind of guy who who thought that everybody was as brilliant as he is, and and they would understand whatever he, whatever he spouted out. And that was not the case. Um, so I wrote a book. It's called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life, and. And the purpose of the book, at least the first half of the book, was was to present Gilbert Ling's ideas, and maybe in somewhat simplified form, but in a form that was accessible to uh, people who um, who are open to thinking uh, alternative views, uh, uh, different from from the conventional uh, point of views, but it's supported by evidence. And I, I'm not sure if I succeeded or didn't succeed, uh, because the reviewers were mixed, some of the some of the reviews uh uh said oh you know this is just more of gilbert ling and we know that gilbert ling is a crackpot so please don't bother don't bother even looking at uh at this book and at the other side at the other end of the spectrum was a review from a well-known cell biologist from harvard university and of course it's, it's a harvard you got to take it seriously he said this is this is uh 304 page preface to the future of cell biology and that one had uh, had more, more appeal anyway that's how that's how we got we got started and and uh, uh immediately after that we started doing experiments um uh, i quote borrowed some of the money that we had uh from the national institutes of health to study muscle and i kind of shifted it uh somewhat to begin studies on on water And those studies have have proved, um, I I think, uh, uh, really exciting, useful, whatever. So that's, anyway, if that answers your question, I'm sorry to run on and on, but that's how we got started.
0: (laughs) Amazing background, important for people to know. It was an interesting conversation that Paul and I had before we came on to interview you about the skepticism that sometimes um, we get as a kickback from or a pushback from the science community. And there's one of them there in, you know, um, Ling's work, but also you've taken it further. And now that you have discovered the fourth phase of water, how's that shaping up in the science community? Because we do know that science isn't necessarily science anymore, not in all communities. And there's a lot of funding that has, other interests. Uh,
1: Let's well, just funding stay in is funding is a real challenge. Uh, I must tell you, um, you know the way the the, the way the system works. Um, well, you, there are two aspects to your question. One is the funding, and the other is the reaction of the community. So, um, I'm not sure which one to address first. Maybe uh, the reaction of the community because that that came first. And then, if if I forget, please remind me about the second aspect of your question. Um, well uh there there has been pushback and um and the pushback the pushback starts with actually a colleague of mine from my own university and we 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 had uh we had multiple uh meetings uh this this guy is chem- in the chemistry department and um and he was curious about a lot of things and we sat and we discussed and um he would he would ask me a question and i would Come up with the answer, and I I felt that he really he really didn't have so much interest in hearing my answer, but more in demonstrating how smart he was and and how he knew everything about everything. So I heard nothing from him for a few years, and then two years later, uh, there were a couple of manuscripts that appeared, uh, major manuscripts, great length, uh, su- suggesting essentially that. That our interpretation was completely wrong, and there have been five or six um other responses all from people in the uh, community who have interest in water who have studied water um and uh, my 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 response is um I did respond to that the the first couple of papers uh, I didn't responded afterward because because most most of of the critical comments, uh, didn't make sense, uh, to me. And, uh, uh, so they, they dealt with just to say, uh, you know, in order to, for this kind of water, easy water, fourth phase, water, structured water to build, you need some kind of, um, uh, material, uh, surface of the material. It builds from the surface. And we've, we've looked at, uh, dozens and, Dozens of different surfaces that have the capacity to build this water, and essentially all of the uh, all of uh, of the the critical commas dealt with one one surface, and um, and and we've dealt with so many with completely different properties. Even even uh, we immerse magnets in water, and we found that next to the north and south poles, we we get this kind of. Um, uh, fourth phase or exclusion zone water and and that sort of observation simply goes beyond the kind of criticism that has been waged so I, I've known um that there's always going to be criticism if you if you pose something that goes against the the establishment point of view there will always be people who respond and it was I think it was Albert St. Georgie who said uh, the, the famous Nobel laureate, the father of modern biochemistry, who said it was only um, when the response to an idea of his was polarized, you know, some strongly against and some strongly in favor that he knew he was on to something important because because <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was not important. You won't you won't get any responses from the people who have a stake in the prevailing paradigm. And so, um, so yes, we have gotten negative responses and, um, and I, you know, I, I actually appreciate critical comments and I think about them. And usually what happens is it makes me think some more, but I I have a sense that these critical comments are, um, you know, they, they don't, they don't seriously compromise the ideas that we have put forth. Uh, And so on the positive side, uh it's it's just amazing how so many people from so many different fields have taken up what we found and have flown with with the ideas and that, that involves not just hydration uh but so many areas uh, uh beyond hydration um uh, uh like um uh, well cancer is 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 one idea how how to build ice skating Olympic ice skating rinks uh, so that, that they're pretty much free of, of friction. Um, uh, to uh, how the ancient Romans kept cool in the hot summer uh, areas. Areas throughout all of all of science and nature and and, and technology. Uh, and it has happened uh, over the last three or four years. I, I started listing because one of my students told me I should list the the number of different applications of this fourth phase water uh, that are serious applications and the number totals I started listening to them because I you know it seemed like an interesting thing to do and the number totals roughly eighty right now so it's really taken off and you know I think one of the reasons it's taken off uh, in different different areas is that the people working in these areas they don't really care whether the fourth phase water is right or the the prevailing idea, if you if there is a prevailing idea, is is right because they're interested in you know, something useful, something that helps them. They have no uh, uh, predisposed judgment against, and and it's really taken off. So it's taken off to the extent that um, you know I I'm doing many many interviews like uh, like this one. Um, not like this one exactly, but uh, there are many many interviews, and a lot of people are are seriously interested. And you know, I I, I guess uh, to finally answer this aspect of of your question, what one of the reasons is that is that we found that this kind of water actually contains energy. Um, and if you ask me, I can you know a subsequent question, I I will tell you about it. It contains energy and energy is useful wherever there's water there's energy and um and and this has this has application or implication in so many different areas the fact that there is energy that's that's stored in uh, in the water or in this kind of water so okay so that's the first part of 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 your question
0: jerry before you answer the next one Can you just give our listeners a little bit of an idea? What is easy water? If you don't know what easy water is. So we're just going to kind of get back to that.
1: Yes. Thank you. Uh, Okay. Um, Yeah. And, and um, maybe it's a, it's a kind of structured water, but the structure is different from what Gilbert Ling uh, uh, suggested and maybe it's best if I explain it by Giving you, telling you the story of how how we began studying it, what we found. I think that's probably the, the 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 best way. So you know, Gilbert Ling's idea is that the the water molecules are ordered, and when you have order of molecules like that, it's a crystal. It's a kind of crystal. You might call it a liquid crystal. And crystals, <laughs> as they form, um, exclude particles because they're they're pure. And in order to attain purity if you start let's say you start with water and the water forms ice which is a crystal the water will get rid of the impurities uh otherwise the the ice crystal won't be pure and ice crystals are pure so so the kind of structure that gilbert was talking about uh, would exclude uh, molecules and particles so we started looking uh experimentally for uh, some some experimental setup where we could see that water is excluding particles. And we found it right away. We took a gel and we put the gel in water and we mm-hmm. added particles to the water. The particles were little spheres called microspheres, widely used, nothing exotic. And 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 we looked under the microscope and we could see right next to the gel um, in, the, in the water. We, we could see these microspheres were progressively excluded from from the region of the surface of the gel on outward, and it kept growing uh, up to, you know, we would see, initially, we could see up to um, uh, a few hundred micrometers. That's a a fraction of a millimeter, a substantial fraction, which you could almost see with your naked eye. Um, You could see with your naked eye, Uh, and so we thought, okay, so this is, this is what Gilbert Ling is talking about. And at first we thought, well, you know, he's right. We could see it right there. We could see this kind of exclusion. And that's why someone suggested to us that we call it exclusion zone, because it was a zone that excluded, or e Z for exclusion zone, which is sort of easy to remember. <laughs> it doesn't work in Europe where it's EZ, um, but it's easy. So but then we get, began studying this particular zone and we found that all of the properties that we investigated, they were all different from liquid water. And that's why we began calling it fourth phase water because it was water of some sort and it had properties that were not uh, the same as any of the known phases of water, particularly liquid water. So, so that's the first. Um, and um, so this is a kind of, sort of a kind of water, um, um, that is organized and structured. We know that it's, it's structured because of, of its physical chemical properties, uh, particularly optical properties. And then the, the, maybe, maybe the most interesting, well, one of the most interesting features of this was that it was not neutral. Ordinary water, liquid water is neutral, but, uh, we stuck electrodes, tiny micro-electrodes, parenthesis invented by the same Gilbert Ling, close parenthesis, for which he should have gotten a Nobel Prize because others using that technology have gotten Nobel Prizes, but not him. Uh, He was too controversial. So anyway, we stuck these electrodes in the EZ or in the fourth phase, and lo and behold, it's not neutral it's typically negatively charged now uh, and we repeat this again and again and we're still repeating it again and again and we always find um we find consistently the the same uh kind of result um there's so the after-
0: same charge the same charge as mother earth
1: the same charge as mother earth right mm-hmm. and and um well I don't want to digress too much but you know, <laughs> there is water that's contained in 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 mother earth and contained deeply down in the the mantle uh, nobody knows exactly what kind of water that is but this so-called primary water um yeah is is um uh, is said to have a volume that is something like three or four times the volume of all the water on the surface of the earth so you know it's possible that the negativity of the earth which is something that I took took me by surprise because I had had I'd studied electrical engineering to start with and nobody ever even hinted that uh no professor even <laughs> hinted that the earth might be negatively charged. It was always zero. It was ground, you know, uh and so I was taken aback when I first heard about it and then looked into the Earth's negative charge. And I think that the Earth's negative charge is critically important. It's a digression. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, uh, but let me finish, finish answering the question, if I can remember um, uh, where we were in. Oh, yeah. So we stick the electrode and we measure negative charge. However, it started with water, which is neutral. And you got a zone which is negatively charged. Therefore, there's got to be a zone that's positively charged because, you know, you can't create positive charge from neutral. Uh, the, what you can do is create. You can separate charge, get get negative somewhere and positive somewhere else. And we found right after that that the positive charge is contained just beyond the negatively charged exclusion zone. So you mm-hmm. have negative, and next to the negative is positive. And if you have negative and positive, you have a battery. Um, and so what we discovered basically is that. There's energy that's contained in this battery, and we actually tested to see that we stuck one electrode in the negative, and one electrode in the positive, and we could obtain current enough to light um, an LED, light emitting diode. You know, we we could we could actually see the diode glowing brightly. So there's no doubt, you know, we have proof of principle that this kind of energy that is created by the separation of charge is useful, uh, and it turns out that it's useful in many many different realms. So that's that's another feature of of the whole uh, fourth phase business is that there's it's kind of like a battery with with electrical uh, energy. Uh, one more point: in order to get in order to get electrical energy, I mean you know from your cell phone that if you don't plug it in at night, it won't work the next morning. Uh, And batteries need to be charged. And this battery needs to be charged as well. So how, you know, how do you get this buildup of negative, easy, and positive charge beyond? How do you get this battery? How do you get to charge it? And it turns out uh, that uh, the answer is, it comes from infrared light. Um, You know, and 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 it was found by by a student who was shining a lamp and found that where where the lamp was illuminating the region of easy it just grew like crazy and he turned it off and it returned back to to its original. And so we did serious experiments and we found that that it was you know because the light that he used contained many different wavelengths and so we investigated each one of those wavelengths independently and and it turned out that infrared was by far, by you know, a thousand times more powerful than any any of the other uh, wavelengths that we, we studied, and infrared is all around us. If if you were if you were to turn off all the lights and in the room you're in, so you couldn't see anything, and the, the, and the camera on your cell phone couldn't see anything. If you had an infrared camera, that is a camera similar to one you might have, but the sensor is not sensitive to to visible light, but infrared light. If you've got one of those cameras, uh, you'd be able to see everything, despite all the lights turned off and and nothing visible to the naked eye. And that's why, that's why the military uses uh, infrared goggles or cameras and whatever to detect what's around them at nighttime. So everything is generating infrared light. Not 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 just the toaster or the electric oven, but but everything um to some extent you know and and it's it's energizing this battery and and so as long as you've got infrared energy coming in um in in your case um um, you know you have it coming in from outside but you're also metabolizing which generates heat um which which also uh, then produces infrared energy because heat and infrared are not exactly identical but but uh, close to it, so you're getting infrared energy from outside and inside, uh, and therefore, this is what powers the easy build up inside your body. But it's also outside your body because there's infrared there. So if you have, if you have the the proper situation, which generally involves a hydrophilic surface, water loving surface next to water, you'll always get easy build up. So that means that. Easy is everywhere. It's not only inside the body, but it's outside the body too. Throughout agriculture and 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 uh, you you name it rivers, uh, uh, clouds, what have you. Okay, so I've I've given you a background. You asked me the question, "What is easy water?" And I I hope I kind of made a little bit clear what what is easy water. If not, please <laughs> ask. I'll try harder next
2: time. Okay. So Jerry, um the the uh the implications for people who are concerned about their health and cellular hydration, uh proper cellular hydration is obviously they want to make sure that uh you know they've got easy water in the, in their cells. Um and it occurs to me that uh, or actually the question occurs to me um it, it it sounds like the process by which easy water is made is uh internal uh our cells are have evolved in such a way that they can interact with infrared energy to produce these exclusion zones which uh are complemented by zones of positive charge and together, these, these essentially batteries can cause work to happen. Uh, you mentioned in uh, your TED talk, the bending of folding of proteins, for instance. So um, so the, the process happens at the cellular level. Uh, so what is the advantage, if there is an advantage, to actually introducing structured water uh, from the outside instead of just trusting that any old water you put into your body is going to end up structured thanks to this mechanism within the cell?
1: Sometimes, uh, you know, we would hope that that the cell is filled with easy water because easy water is necessary um, for essentially everything the cell does. It's a muscle cell. You need the easy water uh, to start with to facilitate facilitate the contraction. If it's a nerve cell, you need the easy water to facilitate the information transmission along along the nerve. If it's a secretory cell, you need uh, easy water in order for the secretion of hormones to happen. So you, you need it. Unfortunately, um, our cells um, don't always have a full complement of easy water. You know, there can be pathologies. Uh, uh, or dysfunctions that develop. And in, in such cases, um, help can be obtained from external means that build up uh, the easy water. So, I mean, a good example uh, is the cancer cells. Um, and and uh, uh, there is a, a pretty clear indication that cancer cells don't have a whole lot of easy water. That comes from direct studies of the kind of water in the cancer cells. And it comes more indirectly, but more conclusively, I think from measurements of the electrical potential of those cells. So I may digress for for one minute. You know, the electrical potential of cells um, is something that's been studied for 60, 70 years, made possible, by the way, by these electrodes uh, invented by Gilbert Ling, because you can stick them in a cell and measure the potential difference from inside to outside. And then you pull the electrode out and the cell is not dead. It, it actually is, is okay. And and typically it, it amounts to um, between 50 and 100 millivolts negative. And, and the question the question is why the cell is negative. And, and it's almost universally, but incorrectly, I believe, uh, uh, thought that the reason uh, that the cell has negative electrical potential is... Has to do with 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 membrane um uh, I, uh what's the right word for it uh i i hesitate to use, use the word gadgetry because it sounds dismissive but um it has to do with uh pumps and channels in the membrane and and these these pumps pump ions inside the cell outside the cell and the idea is that more negative ions. Are pumped inside the cell than positive ions, so the cell is negative. I've argued against that idea now for uh, in in my various books and and in uh, a paper that I I wrote on the subject, and I think that idea is completely erroneous. And mm-hmm. um, and, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I think is the reason the cell is negatively charged because it's relevant to what we were talking about in a moment, but you can there there are at least a half dozen different reasons to draw that conclusion um and 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 one of them is you know the cell is uh, uh, from a simple point of view is a, a gel that's surrounded by a membrane um and the question is uh does the electrical potential come from some properties of the gel or from the membrane as almost everybody believes if you look at gels without membranes just ordinary gels and you stick the same electrode in you get the same negative electrical potential <laughs> so you know it's hard to argue that, that it has something to do with the gadgetry in the membrane if you can get the same electrical potential just by <laughs> from the gel itself and there are, there are other other reasons but i i don't want to digress uh uh too much so if not the pumps and the channels, then what's the reason for the negative electrical potential? Well, I think it's very simple. It's got easy water. Easy water is negatively charged. Therefore, you have negative electrical potential. You know, it's not complicated. <laughs> if you have a, a sack full of negative charges, <laughs> the inside of the sack uh, will be negative. So the reason I'm talking about that it's it's a digression, but not a but a relevant digression. And the reason I'm talking about it is I mentioned that cancer cells have a very low electrical potential. If I'm right about the reason uh for the uh or the, the for the negative electrical potential, it means the cancer cells don't have much easy water. See, and therefore they can't function. Um uh or they can't function the the way ordinary cells would function because you need this this easy water for, for function. And, and um, um, it also, it also has to do with division. You know, it was found like 50 years ago that, uh, uh, that for cells to divide, what has to happen is the electrical potential has to go from its normal value of 50 to 100 millivolts down to low electrical potential, like near zero, and stay that way for some length of time. Then the cell gets a signal, oh, okay, it's time to divide. Well, cancer cells sit at that low electrical potential indefinitely. And so cancer cell gets gets the message, oh, got to divide. And it keeps dividing and keeps dividing. So, so um, you know, th- those those are some examples of pathological cells or seriously pathological cells. Um, you know that that and the reason for the pathology, I, I believe, is is a dearth of easy water. You must have the easy water to function properly, um, and um, you know, and that that leads to um, that leads to a, a potential uh, reversal, uh, not just cancer cells, but of all cells, the cells need to be need to need to have the easy water. Essentially, they need to be hydrated, right? That is hydration. Hydration, cellular hydration, is the buildup of easy water, and all the cells need to have hydration in order to function properly, uh, full hydration. So I'm I'm sorry, I've gone on a sort of loop and uh, maybe on a tangent, but I, I wanted to uh, to talk about that. I I hope that. Gets at your question. And, um, yeah.
2: Well, uh, you you seem uh, you seem to be arguing against the the conventional mechanism of ATP production, the ion channels, and all the rest of it. Is that right? Uh, are you arguing that cellular energy is produced by easy water as opposed to the you know that that um, difference potential difference between the inside and the outside of the cell that these that uh, ion channels um, capitalize on.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I um, well let let me put it put it this way. Um, um, this is a source of energy um, uh, for 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 the cell, and you know, usually, if if in nature has a source of energy, it uses that energy. And and we do have one example of of a situation, and I think important one, where that energy is definitively used uh, by the mechanism we're talking about. If you ask me about it, I'll I'll tell you, but I I don't want to digress too much. I have a tendency, you know, to go on (laughs) the tree branches off to a limb and another limb and another branch, and I forget where I was. I forget the major limb again, so. I
2: assume you're referring to photosynthesis?
1: Well, no, but that is no? good. Uh, the, the, so please ask me that first. Um <laughs> okay. uh, uh, yeah, photosynthesis. Absolutely. Um, um so um y- yeah. So um um the energy um in in the cell, the energy is a bit a bit different because when you think of of, of the cell itself, it's full of negative charge if it's got easy. And those negative charges, um, what they want to do is get as far away as possible uh, from each other, uh, right? Because you you put negative charges near each other, they hate it. They want to get away, and that's potential energy, and that's the energy I believe that's 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 used to propel various processes. One of which, if you ask me, I'll I'll tell you. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is about ATP. So. Now, everybody knows that ATP is a source of energy, the high energy phosphate bond and we're we're suggesting that there is another source, and we don't know you know the source that we're talking about we don't know if it, if it's one percent of uh of the energy and the other ninety nine percent is ATP or there's another possibility and this possibility was raised by Gilbert Ling, and I feel obliged to mention it because he might be right and uh Gilbert Ling talks about um it's still I think last I looked, his website, Gilbertling.org, still still exists. Um he passed a couple of years ago, but the website is is somehow ma- maintained. And he, he brings up the the idea of the high energy phosphate bond of ATP, which everybody believes. So that was that was discovered by a, a group of chemists, uh what was it maybe 80 years ago? And what what um, what's not known or realized by people is that there was a challenge to that and the challenge came a year or two later by another prominent physical chemical group and they said the first guy screwed up they made a simple arithmetic error there is no such thing as a high energy phosphate bond now gilbert's gilbert lee's point of view um maybe is more extreme than mine he does point out that, you know, it might be possible and it looks likely that there is no such thing as high energy phosphate bond in ATP. I take the point uh, that it's not clear uh, that it needs to be pursued. The question needs to be answered. If you've got two groups, two prominent groups that one is arguing um, uh, yes, the other is arguing no, it needs to be followed up um, to see which which one is right. Because the challenges might be right, or the challenges might be wrong. It needs to be followed up. It's desperately important that somebody follow up. Now, I don't know what the results of this follow-up might be, but there is a possibility that the whole idea is bogus, um, you know, that the idea of a high energy uh, phosphate bond in ATP is completely wrong. And so if that's true, if, it's a big if, uh, if, if it's true, then you gotta ask the question, well, you know, if it's not ATP, high energy phosphate, bond, what is it? Well, we propose an alternative. And as of today, we, we don't know um, if this alternative is, is you know, it, it presumably it's used to some extent because nature, you know, if nature has an energy source, it's gonna use it. Uh, it's not gonna abandon it. We don't know whether this is the entire source of energy for the cell, or 1% of it, or what? Uh, and so this this needs follow-up, but I, I had to mention. Now, if I may go on to your point about photosynthesis, because that idea tickles me. Uh, so we all know that, you know, plants thrive from light. They get their energy from light. Uh, well, you know, I'm suggesting that the energy for buildup of fourth phase is light uh, and um, and and so what what we've discovered what we've discovered is that what light does is to separate charge in 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 terms of easy, so you've got negative easy and positive charges beyond. Well, that's similar to the first step of photosynthesis. What light does is it breaks up the water molecules into plus and minus. So there's a kind of similarity, and I I've always thought that what we discovered is a a kind of generic form of photosynthesis of the first step in 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 photosynthesis, um, and but nature of course does it the best way possible, and 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 so so nature exploits this kind of mechanism that I think that 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 we've identified, and it does it in the best possible way, uh, the most effective way. Or most efficient way, and that's why the step is the first step of photosynthesis is considered to be a hundred percent efficient. Um, however, the photosynthesis people have never answered a fundamental question: um, How is it that light can separate charges? The water uh, charges into O H minus and H plus because we learned, I learned, I learned in in middle school that if you got negative and you got positive. They don't want to separate. They want to stick together. <laughs> so, you know, how is it? Well, I think we haven't answered that to that question because, because uh, we, what we've been able to find, which I have not yet talked about in in our our discussion, is the structure of the EZ. So it's a. It turns out, it's a a a, a, a sheet structure, it's a series of sheets um molecular sheets that build from 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 the the physical surface next to the water uh that i was talking about you get the first sheet and the first sheet acts as the template for the build-up of the second sheet and so on sheets 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 and each sheet is a honeycomb it's got hexagons it's built of hexagons which are you know which are common in nature those hexagons are really small now this this is a negatively charged structure and on the out just beyond that you've got all those positive charges they want desperately to enter into this negatively charged matrix problem is that they can't because when you have a free proton it latches onto water giving you a hydronium ion this is well known in chemistry so sitting beyond the ez are all these positive charges but they're hydronium ions and the hydronium ion is simply too big to enter into into um, uh, these hexagons, so it's kept apart. It's physically kept apart because it it can't physically uh, enter, and so you have the plus and minus charges that are effectively indefinitely uh, separated. And that's what the photosynthesis people have have not yet uh, addressed: the idea of how the separated plus and minus first step of photosynthesis, how how that can physically be. And I think in our what we found in this generic, I I, I would venture to say this generic first step of photosynthesis, we know, or at least we think we know. <laughs> we we think we know a lot of things that may turn out to be wrong. You know, we're we're not omniscient, uh, but it's the best we have. So anyway, I hope that answers your your question.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Go ahead, Tammy.
0: Our listeners are really um, opening up their mind with this podcast. So thank you, Jerry. So maybe we can, a couple things, because we're coming to an end here. Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about the implication of easy water. So some of the things that you say that builds easy water is just, first putting in the water, we need to be drinking water, we need to stay hydrated, and and maybe not all water is created equal. The other thing, you know, which gives complete um, reverence to what I've studied, I have a master's in plant based raw nutrition, mostly, that vegetables know exactly what to do. And fruit, the water in vegetables and fruit know exactly what to do that negative ionic charge of that water. And when I've studied at many wellness centers, when people are concentrating on drinking a lot of easy water from vegetable juices and eating a lot more raw food that has the exact molecular structure to know how to do its work in the body, when they're tested three months later with the phase angle test, they the tests show they're much more hydrated. And this is important. This is important to know because we know that cancer can't breed in a nice, easy water structured body. Then you have also mentioned putting in the water, considering drinking green juices, grounding, getting that negative ionic um, exchange from the earth and infrared saunas. And of course, being out in the sun. So these are all doable things for people to be able to, you know, encapsulate that and their health. But I'm wondering about how the implications of really understanding easy water can make a difference for you know the animals, our animals, and maybe even the earth. How can we possibly um, be able to provide water for people where there is very little water? I'm quite curious about that.
1: Oh, wow, you're going beyond my pay grade. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure how. You know how to um how to answer that question i uh you know i began talking about the so-called primary water that sits uh beneath um uh, beneath the earth and um uh, and and the question is one one question may be how we can tap that water um to complement the water that we have on the earth and i i actually i have been thinking about uh about that and I, I hope this doesn't um, doesn't uh, go into a, a digression, but uh, I'll say say it anyway. Uh, uh, when you think about a volcano, for example, you know uh, there was a volcanic eruption. I forget the name of the volcano this year, and it was said to add five um, percent of atmospheric moisture. Atmospheric moisture was augmented by five percent as a result of this eruption which means the eruption contains a lot of water. So what's going on there? Uh, you know, where does the water come from? And presumably it, it comes from somewhere down below. And um, and it leads to a, a sort of different question, but it is relevant. Uh, where does the energy come for the volcano? And I've been thinking about that, energy for volcanoes and earthquakes, uh, uh, where, where does the energy come from and some people think well the earth was somehow endowed with with a kind of energy and still using that energy but that was a long time ago you know it was more than a thousand years ago it was more than a million years ago and it was like six or seven billion years ago that the earth was born and you'd expect that kind of energy would have dissipated by now but apparently you know i mean you need an energy you need energy to create a volcano so where does the energy come from well i've been I've been thinking about the possibility that this primary water that exists beneath the earth, um, that it if it forms easy water, it also forms protons because the two go together and protons repel each other. Uh, they're free and they repel each other. And if they repel each other, they build up a lot of pressure. And I'm thinking that uh, the source of energy could be exactly that, that the earth may receive Uh, infrared energy from the sun uh, and build up from this energy, build easy water and, and positive charges. uh, And, and these may actually build pressure that, that, that is the energy that's responsible for the volcanic eruption. And you could argue also the same, the same for earthquakes, because they also need uh, energy. Um, You know, so, so, so this is a, this is a possibility and now if if the volcanoes uh and and also the earthquakes if they spew out water then um you know we 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 therefore can get water somehow from maybe not in the most convenient way but we get water from the center of the earth and 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 so this can add to water on the surface of the earth so that's one the second has to do with with clouds and such and you know um is is the water stored in the clouds or is it mostly in the earth and what what makes the difference and and therefore you know you were alluding to my my next book that's coming out which actually only partially deals deals with weather it deals with with other subjects uh that have to do with phenomena that we witness every day but we don't really understand them and i think all of them have to do somehow with water, with energy, with charge, electrical charge that, in fact, comes from water. So, in order to understand weather, uh, you need to understand the evaporation. You need to understand how clouds form. And my understanding is that atmospheric scientists have no clue about those those two features. So, so if you want to put more more water in in the Earth, um, uh, you need to know. Um, how much is stored in the clouds, um, or beyond the clouds, and you need to know how much comes down by way of precipitation. And I, I, I guess, therefore, you need to know something about weather and how it works. And what I've tried to do in this book is to start from first principles of physics and chemistry, principles that are simple, and, you know, like plus and minus attract each other, and minus and minus repel each other, starting from principles just like that. Um, and what we've seen in the laboratory to build a, a real understanding of weather. And then we can understand uh, uh, how much there is on the Earth and how much of it is is up in in in, in the clouds and in and, and the atmosphere and maybe even even beyond. Uh, I guess the third is is uh, the soil itself and um, um, Keeping the soil such that it, it actually absorbs water in the way that nature had intended, and you know by putting on these uh, these uh, fertilizers and chemicals that you know um, treat the earth and in the way that the earth doesn't want to be treated, we we lose the capacity for the earth to store the water, and I believe a lot of that water is easy water, um, and if we lose the capacity, then you know the earth is then devoid of uh, of this kind of water, and we we have a, a problem. Uh, so, um, I, I'd also like to you know maybe in, in closing of this this particular question um, uh, that a lot of people are not not aware there is a a, a method that's that's um, useful um, uh, for for extracting water from from the atmosphere to cause cause clouds and rain, and uh, it's called cloudbusters. And it starts from Wilhelm Wright. Uh, I'm not sure if you're uh, aware of this, but there's someone who's actually working on this in North Africa, um, and he's creating so-called green belt from the west to the east of North Africa, uh, a green belt with you know trees and plants and whatever and. He makes rain using this apparatus and of course it's controversial but the guy is actually doing it and um, it consists of a whole bunch of um, uh, aluminum tubes held together in parallel the back end of which is connected to water and the front end is connected to some point in the sky and after a period of some some days clouds begin to form at that point and they release rain and that's how a green belt is created so This is a, you know, a a seemingly unnatural way, but a way to create rain, to bring the water from the clouds down to the earth. And it's kind of interesting, uh, I think. So let me, I'm sorry if, you know, I speculated on a whole bunch of different ideas and mechanisms uh, and um, I'm I'm not sure, you know, which ones um, uh, really make serious contributions or not, but I just thought I'd
2: mention them. Well, you know the the Gaia hypothesis, of course, sees the Earth as a, an organism, and yeah. uh, you know it it seems like a, a pretty safe analogy to say that just as um, you know contaminants that we put into our bodies can alter the structure of our cells, the which includes the 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 energy exchange that's happening in our cells in the same way, the contaminants that we're, that we're creating on earth are interfering with those, you know, natural energy exchanges that happen on the planet. I I think, you know, what's happening microcosmically is also happening on the macro level. And uh, so I think, um, You know, appreciating as best we can some of these mechanisms and trying to uh, support their functioning instead of interfering with them is, uh, I think, a real, not just biological imperative, but moral imperative for us as a species.
1: Uh, I couldn't disagree with that one bit. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the Gaia hypothesis, uh, you know, makes it a whole lot of sense. It's just the problem is that, you know, if you try to look at physical and molecular mechanisms on on how that happens, that's where I think we need to go from the the sort of generalized hypothesis. But it makes complete sense. Nature knows the best way to do it. And, uh, um, you know, by interfering with nature, all we're doing is compromising nature's... Uh, um nature what nature can do so beautifully and so so well. Um, so stick to nature um, and and we'll do well if we do that.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Gerald. Um that's a great segue to ending this podcast. You know, as as I wrote in my book Earth Gut, our God is a reflection of the earth that we partake in, that we praise or we poison. And We are a million vegan grandmothers, and we hypothesize, but not necessarily just hypothesize, that going vegan helps restore the water that we do have available to us now. Animal agriculture has a huge imprint um, on our water source and the, the ability to access clean water from our aquifers, and we have been delighted to have you here, Jerry.
1: Well, thank you so much, but I have one last question. Um, yeah, you can't be a grandmother. You're too young for that. <laughs> so how, how is it possible that you're a leader of this group? I <laughs> love water.
0: I love easy water
1: oh, wow.
0: and the the gift of understanding easy water is when I started studying in the States and understanding how I could heal myself when I got really sick with Crohn's in my early forties. And you want to talk about the body, not being able to stay hydrated when you have a bowel disorder, you know, that's, that's kind of it. Everything runs through you. When I started drinking lots of green juice, uh, drinking wheatgrass, getting rid of as many contaminants as I could from my system, which I didn't really even think I was that poisoned. And Started connecting deeper with the earth and my thought forms because I think it's really important for people to know that we can create dehydration through our thought forms. Stress creates a lot of biochemical um, problems within our body. So let's just get our easy water on and youth. That's what we can do if we're if we're really super hydrated with this easy water, right, Jerry? We can we can begin well, youthing absolutely. maybe maybe.
1: Uh, okay, well thank you for your response. You didn't answer my question. Um uh, about being <laughs> a grandmother or not being a grandmother. <laughs>
0: um, I have yeah. three grandchildren, four, six, and nine. I don't awesome. believe it.
1: I don't believe it. <laughs>
2: I don't I don't have any grandchildren, but I I just turned 60. So I, no I, way. I'm biologically yeah. capable of having grandchildren.
1: Well, you guys, you guys are amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I, is... I, I would have thought uh at least 20 years younger for both of you. <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. Anyway, thanks thanks for the opportunity. And I was really happy to chat with, with uh you know so uh, so enlightened uh Um, a couple of um, people. Thank you.
0: Um, Thank you, Jerry.